Uh, I um, have the pleasure of introducing Ben Einstein. Uh, he heads Brainstream, which is a local firm which designs, engineers, and creates innovative products. And Ben's newest dream is the development of an old factory building in Hoyoke um, into a center for innovation, uh, including an idea which is called Maker College. Um, but I'm going to let him explain all of this, and uh, feel free. Can people ask questions in the Absolutely. middle? Or Okay, oh, so yeah. ask questions yeah. whenever you want. And yeah. uh, So please help me welcome Ben Einstein. I appreciate it. Say that last name again. Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get that one very often. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, so I'm going to talk about two things, sort of two different parts of my life. Uh, the first is a company that I currently run called Brainstream Design, which is a product development design firm. Um, so people come to us and say, hey, I got this great idea for this, and then we turn that into something that you can actually make it sell. Um, so that involves it, it, tons of different things, but it, 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 it's very often relatively early and then going through the prototyping stage and then trying to sell it to somebody because we don't want to actually manufacture it. Um, so I'll, t I'll talk about that a little bit, and then I got a new project that I'm working on, which is this thing in Holyoke, which is a new way of doing startup companies for product development kind of projects. So I'll, I'll get into that. That's sort of my big passion right now. Um, if, that, if that's okay, if I can talk about both of those things. No. Uh, okay. <laughs> no. Well, then stop me when I when I get there. Um, so yeah. So this is uh, this is Brainstream. We're in Northampton. It's very tiny. It's about five people, um, and we have basically two parts of the business, a part that uh, sort of does client consulting, helping people that come to us and say, we have this idea, and then we've started to sort of develop our own stuff ourselves, because we've built this network of people that, 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 that can sell things. Um, so we do, this is sort of the product development process. Um, we tend to sort of stay in this kind of range, um, but, and, and it often starts after someone has come up with an idea in terms of the client side. Uh, so uh, I'm just going to talk briefly about some of the things that we've done before, and you guys feel free to ask me whatever you would like, because I haven't super formally prepared for anything. Um, so this is sort of the way the business works, really simple. Um, this is uh, one of the first projects we did, which is a, a snowshoe design development project. This is a, a company called Atlas, and they make sort of uh, the standard and sort of high-performance, relatively low-cost snowshoes actually made in the U.S. until about two years ago they, they were made in the U.S., um, and there's a problem with these snowshoes. This is this is a standard model that you can buy. Uh, they're very big. Any of you guys snowshoe at all? Um, they take up a lot of space, right? And it's a lot of empty space. It's a lot of you know the frame takes up space, but there's this deck and this binding and all this stuff that sort of fits in it. And so if you have you know four kids and you want to go snowshoeing, it takes up your whole car. Or, you know, it's this kind of silly problem, right? And so we were approached by by an uh, independent inventor, and she had an idea for actually actually a binding system that would co collapse. And we had done, done some work on sort of ski bindings and stuff, so we knew the market a little bit. And uh, we helped to develop uh, this thing, which is a collapsible snowshoe. So this actually folds into like a yoga mat size, and you can fit um, about five pairs of snowshoes in the volume one pair takes. So which is which is really nice. They're about the same weight, so they're still fairly heavy in terms of the density, and that's because it's difficult to actually make these things much more lightweight than they are, because weight is already a big concern that these guys are looking at. Um, and so this is really good for, you know, you go like backpacking, and you want to strap this on your back, and then hike somewhere, and then snowshoe, or whatever. Or uh, plop it on your snowmobile, you know, there's all this stuff hanging off. Um, so this is what they look like when they're, uh, when they're done. This is a, we went up to what's called a beta run phase, so we did 
sort of sort of the, the conceptualization, the, what we call ideation, so creating the concept and kind of trying to turn that into something we can make. We made about half a dozen prototypes, and then this was the first manufacturing run. This was done on you know full blown aluminum molds in China, um, and it's only four uh, molded, uh, six molded components, and, uh, and a handful of bent aluminum tubes. So you wouldn't go into high volume production with this way of manufacturing, but this is a good way to test that the concept actually works. And if you guys like feeling things, is that something you want to see? I have a couple of pairs here. But so this is, I think actually, you can get about three pairs in this bag, this is like a yoga mat bag, uh, which you would not be able to do if you had a full size. Um, so I can pass these around. So this is what they look like when they're folded. Um, and they kind of do one of these. And then there's a little uh, lock here. Just pops out like so. Lock them back down. And you are ready to go. This one, I guess, is burned for some reason. But I can turn these going around. Leave one unfolded. You know. I'll fold it so it's not like confusing. Once you see something, So the, the vast majority of the work here was um, in designing the, the plastic, which is uh, under. The membrane part, you mean the mat, which the, the mesh, that? No, the. That plastic? The. So that actually technically is a, is a, is a, it's a polymer coated um, fabric, but the, the the plastic body, so the, the, oh, yeah, the cross yeah, piece, yeah, and then yeah. this thing. Um, and it's uh, when you snowshoe, you're under a lot of very bizarre forces with uh, lots of cold temperatures, and most plastics don't like. And was that made locally from the, the the plastic part, like? Hardigan Industries kind of a thing? No, the, the, the plastic was turned out in Shenzhen, um, but we did the design and development here. How much for a pair? Uh, they're not on the market yet, so it's hard to tell, but these, for, for the beta run, I think we were right around 250 a pair, which is which is pricey, but not outrageous for low-volume low production. It's kind of reasonable, um, especially for something that's new. We made uh, 150 pairs, I think. Um, you guys have any questions about that? I'm going to move on to a different product. What kind of money did you invest in cranking out that? Well, market? we didn't invest anything. Client, client invested. Um, it was right around 200000 I think. Um, and that was taken. Did that include the aluminum holding? Yeah, that included everything. Yeah, and all the materials and everything for the development and all our design time, which was, there was a lot of. So this went through a lot of different uh, pro, uh, sort of phases. Again, the woman came to us with not an idea for a snowshoe. It was an idea for a binding. Um, yeah. And she had this, uh, it, it's actually kind of an intriguing idea, but it was, it was a binding that you would, you know, one thing that you'd wear on your shoe, and you'd use it to go rollerblading and ice skating and all this other stuff it would be this kind of like modular system. Problem is, when you do that, you just wind up making everything so-so. You know, so all, your experience with all these different sort of optimized supporting products becomes, eh, uh, and that's not really what you want. So yeah. it turned into the uh, everyday Edison kind of a thing, where those people come in with their idea and... It ends up being not what they had in yeah, mind and, and, at all, but they're pretty happy with it. around the money thing, uh, did you have uh, investors, uh, a network of investors? Uh, this is, so this is the, the second company I've started. The first company, uh, which was actually completely unrelated to product design, it was a software company. 
um, I did raise money for that, but this was actually totally bootstrapped. Um, and the only reason that's able to happen was a, a company I was working, doing a lot of consulting for when, right when I left school um, called Page Block Design. I don't know if you guys are familiar with them, but they're, they're, much, they're about 35 people in Florence. And they went out of business like two weeks after I graduated from college. And I picked up all the clients. So I was able to go from zero to 60 in a week. Do you, do you have people on board that know how to help you find money? With people with money interested? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll get to that a little bit okay. more with my next project. Um, this company doesn't need any money because it's all clients so I do. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll, we'll talk because that sounds great. Any other questions about this thing? Pretty simple, um, but fun. Yeah. Is it going to go to market just like this, like the beta, or is it going to evolve some more? Yeah, no, it's, it's actually a different firm took it um, to do this sort of final development process to get to get it to go to market. Um, so the basically the goal of our project with this person was to develop units that she could send out to retailers. So she sent them to Tubbs and to Atlas and to um, L.L. Bean and Dick's Sporting Goods and all these guys and all met with all the buyers and they said, yeah, we like this, you should change this, this and this, or get out of here, this is crazy. Um, and it's definitely strange because this is a product that doesn't fit into this sort of standard snowshoeing product line. And so it's kind of a weird sell for, I think, this kind of market. So it, it's, um, it's a good jumping off point to, to give it to a producer. It looks sounds so Tubbs or Atlas or... Yeah, I mean, I think... That with a product like this, that's the easiest way to go to market. Um, you know, it's it's a relative, it's a surprisingly competitive industry, the snowshoe sort of outdoors market. Um, and so it was, uh, it was her. I think it was her dream to really start a company, and she was going to go out and raise VC money and create a big thing. And and you know, I've done that before, and it's a lot of work. Uh, and if I think she was less passionate about it that she needed to be in order to do that, so we suggested that she try to license it. So I think that's kind of what she's working on. But I'm not in the loop as much as I was a year ago when we did this. Now, how do you handle the intellectual property when you said she originally started off with the binding and you evolved from there to something entirely different? Yeah, I have um, somewhat strange views on intellectual property for someone who deals with it for a living. Um, and so we are very generous with intellectual property with our clients. So. Um, she had filed a provisional patent before she came to us, um, again, regarding this binding system, and we asked her to file a second patent on the actual sort of design of the cross piece itself, which actually there, there isn't a lot of prior art on. But we very rarely go for patents, and very rarely recommend clients go after patents, um, just because of the expense, and usually it's not productive in the markets that we work on. So, because a lot of this, a lot of this stuff is happening so fast, and I'll talk about this more with our next product, which is a great example of this. Um, you can actually go through the entire EOL process, so developing a product, shipping it, having people buy it, uh, and then it dies eventually. It's only usually two or three years down the road before a patent is actually created, um, and before that patent makes you money. So, if you can actually commercialize stuff just really fast and quickly, and usually more cost effectively, you can wind up making more money than protecting your IP. And again, that, that depends on the industry. Um, if you're working in, you know, science, for example, you know, that's obviously super important to protect yourself. But with a lot of the consumer products that we work on, it's just not worth it. Yeah. It's like five years, I think, for the last one I did. Yeah. 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 I mean, it just takes a long time. And I've done it before. It's just a pain. Um, yeah. And I think it's, with certain things, it's good. Certain things, is, is not good. And a lot of people, 
uh, that don't have an unlimited amount of cash, you know, that 15 grand or whatever it winds up costing at the end of the day. So, so if you don't have the patent, how do you license anything? What do you have to license? Yeah, I mean, she has to have a patent in order to, to license it. But in terms of us, what, what we do, um, so you have to be very careful with the way you handle that. Now, the licensing process itself doesn't require a patent, but the transaction with the company is silly sometimes, depending on the relationship to not have a patent or protect yourself in some other way. There are other ways to protect intellectual property besides just patents. Cool? Okay. 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 Ben, you mentioned one phrase. Uh, bridge strapped. Bootstrapped. Oh, bootstrapped. Yeah. Which is no sort of external funding <clears throat> and sort of piecemeal right. increasing, increasing, increasing. Okay. So you can get to a point where you can make payroll. Thank you. Okay, so this is our, our next product. This is from the sort of internal side. This is something that we developed. Um, this is a wireless universal remote control for your iPod, iPhone, iPod Touch, and now Android, which is a smartphone, which I hope you guys know of, one of these guys. Um, so if you, uh, the idea is you walk into the room, there's this little black box, this little cylinder thing, looks like a little hockey puck, uh, totally wireless, all battery powered. You walk into like your living room and you have this thing sitting there, wirelessly connects over something called Bluetooth, which is a wireless connection standard. Um, and then that communicates with your TV and DVD player and VCR and all that stuff. Uh, so this allows your, your inter the interface for your remote control to be in your, on your phone. It's always in your pocket, so you don't have to lift up the couch cushion to find it. You don't have seven of them laying on the, on the thing trying to find, I need this one for the receiver and this one for the VCR and this one for this. Um, and there's this whole uh, sort of, we've done a lot of work to make it incredibly simple to use. So, you know. Your grandmother can come in here and, and, and say, okay, I just hit this one button, and now my TV is going to be on the right channel, and my VCR is going to be playing, and my volume is going to be set at 50% and all that stuff. Um, and so this is something that we, we created uh, 2009, July 2009, and then uh, sold it through a very strange process to the largest iPod iPhone accessory manufacturer in Europe. And it is now um, for sale. Oh, I guess I should actually show you this video. Uh, this is a, yeah, I, I'll get to that in a second. This is a, a video that they shot. Uh, this is the commercial that aired in Europe somewhere. I don't know. Oh, I don't have uh, sound, I think. Right? Introducing. Is there sound in here? How is sound? You can hear it? Yeah. Okay. Oops. Best Buy, Brookstone, recognize those things. What's going on here? What the
So Best Buy just picked it up, and it's in the Apple Store, Brookstone, Amazon has been the big seller right now. Um, and then a company called John Lewis, which is kind of like uh, Circuit City in the in the UK. Um, and they actually they so we did the first one of twenty thousand units was bought before it got off the boat, which is always a good problem to have because mm -hmm. for Christmas they paired this thing with every TV they sold over maybe five hundred bucks or something. So if you bought a TV, you got one of these for free, which was. Nice. Did you sell it outright or license it? Uh, we so we sold it for uh, an NRE. So we actually developed the product and developed the software application for the phone, um, and then we received a licensing uh, sort of royalty rate for every unit they sell. So it's sort of a combination. Um, and as part of that agreement, we have to maintain the application, which is always fun. Uh, so we've also become a software development company as of a year ago, which is interesting. Um, so I, I have a couple of those you guys want to see. Again, I'm, I'm a physical. Hand guy, so um, as some of these around. There's a one of one of these is I think an empty box. Um, here's a real one. I wish. I'll hold the lottery. Um, how, how many hours of programming hours did it take to develop the uh, iPod app? Um, it was about. I'd have to look at that. It was maybe about 1,200 hours, um, which is funny because the product itself we developed, I remember I was eating a sandwich, and by the time I had finished the beer I had in front of me, the thing was designed. So it was just really simple. Um, it was maybe three hours of work. Um, and then, but you know. <laughs> this, okay, so this is a good question, actually. He said, what does this do? Which is, which is great. So. Um, Okay, inside here is three batteries. Really, really simple product. Actually, the most of the size of here is, a ba is batteries. There's a little circuit board uh, up at the top. And then the, the magic thing is five infrared LEDs, which you can sort of see if you hold it up to a light. So you put this here, anywhere in your, in your room, and this shoots out, just like a, like a TV remote control, it shoots out a pattern of infrared light in a 365 degree pattern to talk to your TV players to change the channel and your DVD to, to change the track and all that stuff. But you're doing it through here, through your phone. So that's kind of like a control station. Yeah, think of it as kind of like a hub or like a repeater right. or something like that. Um, but it's actually much more complicated. There's a, a bunch of software on this itself that figures out how I talk to this TV and all that stuff. Um, does that make sense? Everybody understand this? Okay, it's a little strange because there's nothing attached to it. <laughs> yeah. So does each device, TV, they all have their own, they all use Bluetooth protocol? Or no, so, so the way it works is that uh, TV manufacturers are a massive pain in the ass. Sorry, forgive my French. Um, so they are stuck in like 1965 with, the, with most of, the, of their technology on the communication side. They're great with the processing and the imaging and HDTV and all that stuff is awesome. But they haven't really change the way they communicate with televisions in a very long time. It's all these very simple infrared sort of communication patterns. And so uh, you, have, you have this big problem where okay, there are about 250,000 devices in the world uh, that, that, that you can buy. And they all are different. <laughs> Even devices from the same manufacturer are different. 
Um, and so you have to figure out how do you talk to these devices all, all at once. And so there are basically two ways to solve this problem. Uh, the first is you can collect these things. So you can have somebody, and I'm sure if you guys have ever bought a universal remote control, you've gone through this amazingly painful process of you take your one remote control and you point it at the other remote control and you hit this button and you wait four and a half seconds and then you hold this button for three and a half seconds and then it double flashes and then you know that it learns. It's just silly. You know, it's a really silly process. You can put a number in too, right? Like a three-digit number. That, yeah. So that's the second way. So the, the, the first way is, is this sort of manual learning process, uh, which works. It's just very slow. If you have 55 buttons on your remote control, it takes you four hours. Um, and then the, the other way is a sort of pre-programmed mode where you enter this code in. So you say like 050, and that means you know, Mitsubishi TV made in 1974. Um, so that is how uh, so, so you essentially have to pick which one you want to do. And so this actually has a, a big chip inside of it that stores about 225,000 of those 250,000 codes. Codes, wow. Yeah, so, so we, uh, on the phone you wow. say, I have a you know, Samsung DVD player, and it knows a Samsung DVD player uses this code. And so that's sort of where a lot of the iteration sort of it's a fixed um, EEPROM that we don't actually touch. Technically, it's a programming rule, but we don't deal with it. Um, so that's that's all done at the factory. And so, the sort of on the business side, which is actually the bigger pain in the ass of this of this product, was there's one company in the world that licenses this that licenses this chip, right? And you have to deal with them, which means that it's not fun. And we're small potatoes. I mean, we're selling, maybe we'll sell a quarter million of these. And they're dealing with, you know, hundreds of millions of units a year. Um, so, you know, they put the chip in every single remote control that you buy now. And it's just one company that makes that chip. And so, you know, for us to say, oh, you have this problem with this thing because it doesn't work the way we want to use it. And, and we'd like to buy 50,000, please. Um, it just, you know, it was, it was, it was hard. So uh, we actually discovered a, a problem with their chip. And they were very slow to change it. So... <laughs> Um, just because this is, a, you know, every manufacturer comes in and they have this very specific use. They, they want to put it into this circuit board in a, rem in a remote control that's going to be used for this one TV market. And we're all different saying we have this new process that connects over Bluetooth and all these other complicated things. Um, so that's sort of where that came from. Anyone have any questions about that one? <laughs> so, the port actually is not used for this version of the product. Uh, it'll eventually be used for firmware updates, which means that we can say, oh, we want to have a new version of the software because we found this bug on it. Um, you can plug it into there and it'll, it'll update itself. So the smartphones you support now are the iPod, iPad, and you're working on... Um, What's this button? The, uh, oh, what is it? The, uh, Android? Android. Yeah, so the, the product as it stands now, um, and this is another fun story, the product as it stands now just supports Apple products. So it supports all Apple products. And Apple is, I don't know if anybody has worked with Apple before. Um, I've bought stuff for them and I've always been impressed. I've always been an Apple guy. I use their computers and I really yeah. like them. Um, working for them is a whole other story. And we were actually the first company to develop a Bluetooth iPhone accessory. Uh, and I, by iPhone accessory, I mean an accessory that interacts with uh, a phone on the, on the OS level, on the software level, uh, which is different than like, oh, I have a, a handset or a, or a Bluetooth headset that works or a whatever else, car hands-free thing. Um, it's, it's a different process. And you have to go through this, this uh, program, I guess you would call it, where you have to you know, buy chips from them and then Apple has to like approve every possible thing you could ever think of. You have to basically write a business plan for Apple. This is just so you can sell a thing with their logo on it, you know. 
because um, they're trying to control that quality. And so uh, they, they literally, I mean, this is the most ridiculous thing, they have to approve the packaging of the thing. You know? yeah. And so we had actually designed this really neat polycarbonate uh, packaging. I don't know if you guys know the iPod uh, Nano, I think it is. It comes in this really clear cube. shell thing. Yeah. yeah. The uh, shuffle has a cube. Yeah, I mean, there are, I think it's pretty common now. It used to be very rare. Only a couple products had it. And now most of their stuff comes this way. And uh, I even convinced the client to spend an extra, like, $1.25 per unit on this thing because it was pretty nice. And then we uh, go to get it approved by Apple, and they say, oh, sorry, this looks too much like something we would design. Uh, <laughs> right? And then if you design it not with the right logo and, you know, black packaging, then they would say, oh, this looks too different. We can't put it in our store. You know, so it's this whole ridiculous process. Um, and so, so we wasted about four months of development time, which is a huge percentage of, of the time just dealing with Apple, um, which is stag staggering. Because it's actually a pretty simple product. Um, yeah? You might be able to answer this question. Why does Apple refuse to accommodate Adobe? With, with the Flash stuff? With their iPhone, for example. And so Apple's... Why do they not accept Adobe as... <coughs> yeah, this is a little bit of a divergence, if that's okay. Um, if you guys are okay with it, it's kind of interesting, but it's a little separate from product design. Um, so Apple had, there are basically two theories in development of products, and uh, development of software. Really, that, uh, one is sort of a, a closed system where we control all the pieces. We control the hardware, we control the software, we control everything. And so we know exactly what the user is going to want because we know all the pieces. The other option, which is Google is the best example of this now, is they're very open. So they, they want developers to commit their time for free, this open source stuff. Um, they want to have different players that are, you know, someone's making the hardware, someone's making the software, someone's, you know, doing the business, someone's doing advertising. They have all these different pieces, and you can. There are arguments for both of why they would be better. Um, you know, Microsoft was sort of the traditional player in this sort of. Yeah, I don't want to say open, but you know, they they had you know hardware vendors that you know made their stuff, and they were you know Microsoft approved, and um, it was very. They had a lot of different people that were uh, playing into getting this product, whereas Apple. Even though they don't make most of the components that are inside of an iPhone, you don't you don't know that because all of the all of the players are feeding through Apple. Um, and actually, this is another little side story. I was developing a computer product for um, this company called Avid Thermaloy, which is a big. They make heat sinks. They make about eighty five percent of the world's heat sinks, which is in every computer all over the world. And they have a big plant up in Laconia, New Hampshire. And I was walking by and I saw an iMac in this big, you know, old manufacturing plant with you know all these mills and all that stuff. Why do you have an iMac? He said, "Oh, well, we design. You know, I'm not tell you, We design a, a, a product for for Apple. We design a heatsink for the Apple iMac, which is this pretty amazing piece of technology. The flat panel thing. You guys know this? So it's, it looks like just a display, but the computer is built into it. Um, and when you have not a lot of space, you have to do really, get really creative with cooling. So they came to Apple and said, "Can you guys develop this, this new thing?" And uh, Apple, after they sort of went through this whole thing, Apple said, well, you need to have basically a completely separate quality control system for us. So you have to have, you have to hire separate people that are trained separately from the rest of your staff. You have to have separate machines with, you order your material from where we tell you to order your material. You have to ship it in this amount of time. We're going to tell you, you know, when it has to be done. Very different than a typical, you know, how long is it going to take to make this part? Kind of question. Does, does Steve know about this? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm sure he does. He's, he's a pretty crazy guy. Um, and you know, they they there's a great user experience because of that. But being on the sort of manufacturing side of that is, is a massive pain. But you know, I'm sure it was a, it was a huge contract. So I'm sure it was you know tens of millions of units for these do you, guys. Do you see a time when they will accept Adobe? 
Um, oh yeah, sorry, I didn't really answer your question. Uh, <laughs> so the problem is that uh, Flash and Adobe as a company is more in the uh, closed model. So they, they, are, they have a very specific uh, sort of purpose in terms of the way that they work as a business. They develop you know, Photoshop and all these sort of editing tools that are very, very popular. They're really the only standard in web design and graphic design and all this stuff. Um, and Flash is uh, a resource hawk. It's not very efficient. Um, so it's not, it's not a great piece of software from a sort of control perspective. And so Apple doesn't like that. And so instead of saying, we want to use your product, and you know, they say, go take a hike, we're going to come up with something better, which is this thing called HTML5, which is a new standard in sort of video plane. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that answers the question, but it's, it's sort of, they have different business models. And they don't, or actually, they kind of have a similar business model, but they don't fit into each other. So, um, Fair to say, then, I think that Apple is, I'd rather Adobe is not measuring up. Yeah, they, they say, we want you to do this, this, and this, and Adobe says, no, we don't want to do that, and then so they just kind of go their separate ways. So I think the answer to that is no, they will never support Flash. Uh, and I think, in, in honesty, as a sort of tech person, Flash is actually on its way out. Uh -huh. okay. Can I ask you a question about chip? Which chip? <coughs> sure, yeah. Did, did, you, uh, did you operate the prototype device before you had the custom-made chip? Sorry. Do you, do you have a custom-made... Do you have a custom-made remote control chip in there? No. It's the same one that you get on a universal remote control for Radio Shack? Mm -hmm. Did you prototype using uh, using a breadboarded and wired, hardwired? Did you have did, were you running this thing on a table before it got into that nice little package? Absolutely, yeah. Sure. I mean that's the way everything's developed. But the breadboard is, is a little bit that's old older. Yeah. yeah. Um, well I can't help it. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. Um, it's it's now in fact I wish I could. The, the way a lot of the prototyping of electronic circuits happens now um, is you have a, I don't want to get into too many technical details, but you have a, a basically a system where you can sort of print out a circuit board, um, and so you can kind of make a test of the traces of a board, and then you can kind of wire it yourself. It's kind of a slow process, but it's much faster than a breadboard. When you're dealing with you know 4,000 traces that you have to deal with. Yeah, um, we, we had a speaker in last year, Mike Martino from Black Box Technologies. Mm -hmm. he, he's a... Uh, He's a gentleman in my age bracket, and he actually builds a lot of things that you might like to talk to. Cool. Today. Yeah. Sounds great. Um, he's but a, it's he's another Alec Aguam. Yeah. Uh, so we actually had, had we hired a firm to develop this because of the uh, or to develop the circuit board portion because Bluetooth and one other thing I'm not going to get into, but Apple has this proprietary chip that you're required to have. Basically, it's like a gatekeeper that encrypts everything going back and forth between the phones. Um, and you need some specialization to know how to work with that. So we hired a firm to, to do that and it saved us a bunch of time and money and get it going. Um, then you don't need a custom-made chip to do what you do then? No. I mean, there are, there's a bunch of custom-made stuff on here, but there's no custom silicon. They don't just have one chip. They must have a whole family of them, don't they? They, uh, they have basically two chips. They have a, well, three. They have a, um, what they call a worldwide market chip, which covers devices from all over the world. And they have, because the North American market is so big and kind of separate, they have a separate chip for North America. Um, and so this product actually has two SKUs. It has two separate products, one for Europe and the rest of the world, and one for what the US. What happens if the battery goes just flat dead on that round thing? Yeah, so there, um, somebody, I heard this, somebody asked what this button is, um, which is a good question. <laughs> So there, there's one button on the whole product, uh, and it's called a multi-function button, so it does everything. Uh, and this is the button that you hit to sort of turn it on, even though it's always on, as sort of to wake it up, I guess you would sort of think of it as. Um, 
And so uh, there are, in addition to the five IR LEDs, there's also three other LEDs that show various status messages that you can read a very nice manual about. Um, and one of them is uh, battery, low battery indicator. It'll flash constantly when it's out of battery. Um, and it'll also tell your phone, oh, my battery's replaced me. Uh, but the battery's last about nine months, which is pretty long. Um, it, it's on par with a normal remote control. And that's because we have one extra battery in the normal remote control. And so you just replace the battery? You don't recharge it? Yeah, uh, actually, that's funny. Uh, yes, yeah, so you just replace the battery. There's a little string here, and you just pull this thing out, and the battery's popped out. So <laughs> I see. <laughs> hopefully not all over the floor. Uh, but yes, uh, eventually, actually, this, this USB, this little USB port on here, that'll actually be able to, you can charge it that way as well. Uh, but this is something that I'm sure some of you have gone through, which is everything you add like that adds two things. One is complexity, um, and the other is cost. And this is a relatively competitive price, price product, so we have to deal with the, the cost. Um, this sells for $99, mm -hmm. um, and 79 pounds, I think, in the UK, if you're British. Um, and that'll be, with the next iteration, that'll be, this is, can't repeat this, but it'll be 20 bucks cheaper. Um, so we're trying to compete with other remote controllers. But have this you, is. Has anybody done a workaround yet on your product? Yeah, so we, um, when, we, when this came out, there was nothing on the market like it. There was no other Bluetooth sort of remote control products. And it, there's now been um, three products that have come out. Uh, two of them are use, use Wi Fi, which is a kind of, there's a, lot, a little bit of lag. Um, and they also cost more money, so they're about 200 bucks. And there's one product that, uh, what is called? Uh, is coming out with in, I think, May, they say, which would be fairly similar. It's about three times the size of it, which we don't understand why. And the battery life is only two months, but it's the same kind of thing. But really, the thing that differentiates this product from others is the application. That's really where the user's interacting. And so I think we think that we have the best application. Is your business uh, focused mostly on high-tech kind of stuff? Do you do anything mechanical, uh, you know, like CC machines and, and, and um, you know, like hard, hard products? Like if you wanted to make a better toothbrush or... We, we um, tend to stay in this sort of tech sector. Yeah. Um, but my sort of opinion of that is what we are good at is the process. Not so much the individual thing. So what about this facility that you uh, you have in your mind, uh, or was that Holio? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Would it expand into uh, other yeah, less technical areas? Yeah. So that that process is actually it's totally separate from branching. It's a completely separate company. Um, um, oh, this is part B of your speech, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is fine. Yeah, oh, but but um, it, it it will focus on things that are okay. I guess you'd say simpler. Um, that's not expensive. <laughs> less parts. Yeah. yeah. Um, that, that makes sense, you guys. You have a question about that? No, and this is uh, sort of this is a great reason for it. Um, so, if we were to do a patent, we would be spending a lot of time and energy before we would be able to sell it. Uh, and the amount of money we can make selling this right away trumps that amount of money that we would save. So, uh, there's also not a ton of sort of uh, I guess what you would call novelty in this. There is a couple different systems being paired together that have never been paired together before. Um, but I, in the research that I've done, I, I have one patent, and the research that I've done is that it's not worth it. Is that, a, is that an opinion? Did yeah. you get that from a, a patent trademark office? No. Or was that something No way. Um, yeah. No, no, I mean. They never tell me that. Yeah, no, of course you need a patent. Yeah, give me your money. Um, no, I, I, I don't know. Um, I actually uh, have, have a patent guy that's, that's great. I just don't use him. So he probably thinks I'm less great than you likely to think. 
Would you think that that would be the way to go? Even though provisional patents, you're still getting the product out there and you have a little bit of. It's it's not the way most things are done. You'd have, uh, to, you'd have to go for a PCT right away. I mean, so so the way way we did this is that we signed a non-disclosure with the client before we released okay. it, which is you know, I mean, patent or not, you're still going to go to court. Uh, you know, and yeah. patent helps you, but the amount of uh, sort of patent judgments that are going in your favor as an inventor is surprisingly small. Surprisingly small. Um, and and you, you kind of can see that happening now. A lot, a lot of these big companies, once you get past a dollar amount of revenue, you just get sued all the time. You know, it just kind of happens. And so you see companies like uh, Apple and Google getting sued all the time by companies like Nokia and, uh, you know, the sidekick guy, Danger, whatever they're called, and all these other little companies that, that are like, oh, we have a patent on this, you know, a button that's on a, a touch interface, you know, and like, that's not going to be supported anymore because there's 4,000 other products that have the same thing. So uh, how, does your, how does your licensee and client kind of protect themselves <coughs> if they're licensing it? Being the first one out there and think of, that's it, I'm the first one out yep. there and everybody's behind me. Our, our strategy is, I guess what I would call kind of new world, and it's, it's we uh, need to stay competitive. And our, our IP helps us with that, but the real reason that we have our, our IP is, is to make a better product. And so if we can continually make a better product, we don't need patent protection because we can make it better faster than the other guy can make it better. Oh, yeah, because um, he has to go through all that process. Right, right. And you're, you're in the marketplace before yeah. he's even blinking. And we're a small, lightweight company that thinks about this stuff really efficiently, and so we can make those changes before, you know, big behemoth Griffin is going to come out. So where does it ultimately be made? Where's the manufacturer? They're in Shenzhen. Um, and so we have a contract manufacturer there, and uh, they are actually wonderful, and which is rare for most manufacturers. They do all your FCCE markings. They do all that. Yeah, they, 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 they do all uh, and that's that's a, a a relatively common standard now. So I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but this is a you know, there's a lot of approvals that you have to go through and things like packaging and all this other stuff that is a big pain when you're manufacturing. So imagine you have you know there's six plastic parts and a circuit board and a metal part and all this stuff, and they all have to come together at the right time, be packaged and QC controlled and shipped out. Um, and it's a big sort of infrastructure kind of tangle that you have to deal with and especially when you have five different versions of the product and you have different chips and different things and you have to you know, make sure you have enough of each one of these things. It's really complicated. Um, and this is, is good. Uh, the, the people that make this is good because they do everything. So we say, here's a CAD file. Here's the Eagle CAD you know, PCB file. Um, here's what the box to look like and go. And they figure it all out for us. And so it's on their shoulders to get. Why do you need so many prototypes, Doc? So yeah, so they, they do prototypes is a strong word. They, they do uh, what we call test shot. Um, so they'll they'll do uh, you know we come up with the way it's supposed to look. They d they design the mold, they cut the mold, and then they send us you know ten of them back, and we say ah you need to texture this part, and you need to take a little bit here and make this change. Um, and that's becoming more and more common. It used to be that you would literally have one company and you would contract, you know, you would fly out to Hong Kong and you would find that one company to make that one part and then you'd fly out somewhere else and you'd find the one company so to make that part. they're turnkey. And yeah. basically you give them the CAD drawings and stuff and say this is what we want. Yep. And they'll produce a retail product for you in, what was the time from start to, uh, to receiving the retail product? That's a good question. Um, it's hard to really tell because of all the business stuff that happened. Um, so the time it, for, from, give you a sort of a little example, the time it took from us shipping out the CAD file of what the plastics are supposed to look like to us getting the test shot was about six weeks. 
So, so that's them developing the mold and doing all the analysis of the flow and all that stuff and then shooting the, the first couple of runs and then shipping transit time and everything. Um, and that is a relatively common expectation. So if you go out and get 10 quotes from different contract, contract manufacturers in Asia, you'll, you'll see six weeks, sometimes 10 weeks, somewhere in that range of, of an expected time for your first test shot. And then that's not final, that's first test shots. This is usually another five or six weeks for things like texturing, which you have to get right and um, I don't know, there's always a little problem. Little, you know. Filtering and the cell, right? Uh, I actually don't know. I, I think so. Um, it's rare that things are not hand assembled. Um, well, not rare, but a lot of things are done into a, into a machine type, robot type. Yeah, I, I think with this kind of product, it's not it's not high enough volume. Right. Um, and there's a lot of uh, uh, quality control testing for this packaging. Yep. Yeah, and so yeah, we actually have a separate test application that these guys you know, don't speak English run, and they hit one button and it runs through this whole procedure to make you sure all this stuff works. What percentage of rejects now? Uh, very small. Uh, I think it's less than five percent. Less than five percent. Yeah. Um, and that's including the, the boards because the boards don't get tested until they're into the product, which right. is right. I never understood why that is. But um, and again, I'm a little out of the loop on some of this stuff because it's a client. This is a client project, um, and so I don't know all the details that may have changed. But as far as I know, it's it's about it's less than five percent. Would you rather that relationship? Sorry, about what? The relationship you have with a, a client, or rather than not be the innovator yourself? Well, so, I mean, again, this is falls under that internal side, but we sold it, because I don't, right. this product has one massive problem, there's really two massive problems. The first is, uh, it has a very wide user base, so it's literally everybody from, you know, 15-year-old kids that say, mommy, I want to control this with my phone, to, you know, someone that's very old that has never used a, you know, a smartphone in their life. Um, and so I was fearful of two things. The first is, uh, hi, I plug this in and my TV doesn't turn on. I'm like, okay, well, did you plug your TV in? You know, there's all these questions you have to ask for before you get to the fact, okay, is our product actually working for you? So I don't want to deal with that. I'm not a technical support person. I don't have the people. I don't have the time. I don't care. Um, Second thing is sales. This is a widely distributed product. This isn't like going to uh, you know one company and saying, "Can you sell this for me?" This is you know again, this is Best Buy and Apple right. Store and Brooks and all that stuff. And I'm not a sales guy. Uh, I can sell myself, okay, but I can't sell my products that well, uh, and I don't want to. You know, great for when you're in a nursing home with a deathbed <laughs> tube hanging out of you, yeah. you can't move. Just touches one little thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's hear some Mozart. <laughs> I don't think that's our target market, but it might be encompassed in that. That's a growing market. Have you thought of anything else you can control with an iPhone? Because, I mean, if you get the right interface, you can infrared. This is a booming market now. I'd say about 75% of the dollars we take in are related to the iPhone, iPod Touch, and iPad, which is crazy because it didn't even exist like two years ago, three years ago. And that might be because we have some very specialized knowledge. Uh, there are about five companies in the world that make Bluetooth iPhone accessories. We're one of them. Uh, and that's rare. And, and because we were the first one, we actually get referrals from Apple, which is really helpful. So they say, hey, you guys need a product to be developed. Go check out these guys in the printer. Which is funny, because we're a five-person company that you know isn't technically anything in terms of uh, you know, the kind of people that we have. They're very sort of open, open-minded and you know, have a little bit of software experience, a little bit of electronics, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah. Can I hear some more about your company? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm talking more about our products. Um, I can, that's, 
I don't know. You can ask, ask a more specific well, I mean, question. Well, you had some presentation to, to do here. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so this is another product that we developed, um, actually for the same client. They, after we developed the iPod accessory or the uh, the phone th or the remote control, they're like, "Oh, you guys do a good job. You should d develop this for us." There's a little speaker, smart speaker dock thing. So you plug this in, and it does some extra things than just the thing does by itself. Um, I think a little silly, but it was fun. Uh, this is a chair we developed, seat, couch, whatever you want to call it. Um, that actually, this is another internal project that um, is modular. So these pieces all come apart and you can arrange it in any order you want. So you can make it into a U, you can make it into a curve this way, you can uh, whatever, you can do, do all different kinds of things. Um, and this is something that we tried to sell ourselves and uh, just there wasn't enough demand for it so we made about 10 of them and you know, called it quits. But it was fun, it was a fun little project. And uh, actually got bought by Documenta, have you guys heard of Documenta? Uh, it's apparently the, the largest design show in the world. I'd never heard of it, and I'm a designer, so I was kind of surprised. Did you go to fly? Did you go to fly by night? No. <laughs> a lot. A lot of the furniture vendors have actually very specific rules about sales of products. Um, so we went to a handful of product. Uh, uh, we I have a guy that works with me in San Diego, California. We went out there, and they have a very active sort of local furniture scene. And so we tried to go through that. And they even for like handmade products, they were very specific about. It different kinds of certifications you have to have and fire ratings and all that stuff and I just it's not worth it for me. This is a this is a design project. This wasn't a you know a sales thing. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it was fun. So that's that's this. Um, do you have more specific questions about Braintream as a company? Or do you want to hear uh, about well, the next you thing? do a lot of uh, in house design that's primarily what you do to yeah. do work for clients. Yeah. yeah. So if I came to you with ideas like I want to build this, you can help build it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. What do you charge? <laughs> Always a good question. Um, so we basically work two different ways. We do uh, fixed cost, which is what everybody wants to work on. So I pay this many dollars and they get this thing at the other side. The problem is they don't want to actually pay that until after they get out of the door. Um, and that's it's a difficult thing to, to sort of sell people. So um, there's a lot of variance in the product development process. So hourly uh, is where our sort of rates are calculated from. And depending on exactly what we're doing, that ranges from $125 an hour to $250 an hour. Um, depending on what stage of the process we're working on, who I need to have involved for that process, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so uh, the answer to that is depends on the product hugely. Um, literally, we've worked on products for ten grand. We've worked on products that are quarter million dollars, um, and it just depends on what people are looking for. Go outside your company and look for more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, the company is so tiny, um, and actually is getting tinier because of the next thing I'm going to talk about. Um, and so we have a lot of consultants that we work with, which is really great. Um, and a lot of, actually a good number of students that help out, which is awesome. Um, because a lot of the sort of ideation phase is actually you want to have people from different sort of walks of life that can help create mm -hmm. products. Absolutely. And so uh, there's a very famous company called Ideo that you guys may have heard of. They're sort of a, the leader in this space. Um, Where are they located? They are in Palo Alto, California, and they have offices all over the world, you know, Hong Kong and Japan, although that might not be standing anymore, and uh, Boston, I think, I don't know if it's in Boston, New York City. Um, but they have this, they sort of developed this process of they have uh, teams of people that, that uh, there's literally a history person and an engineer and a, uh, you know, economist and a marketing person and, uh, you know, a handicapped person, whatever. They have all these people that they put together on one team to develop products because you get this really interesting approach to developing stuff and you have all these different people looking at it from different sides. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of do a sort of similar thing, although much cheaper. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Um, I'm sort of in the process of developing my own 
product. Sure. Um, you know, it's, it has to do a lot with mechanical assembly. Yeah. You know, buying things high risk or putting mm -hmm. them in the mm -hmm. But there's certain things, uh, having to do patent process that I can't do myself, like drawings. Yeah. Like that. Do you, do you like um, piecemeal or do you have to do the whole process? Uh, we've done the piecemeal, but I'd say that we're not going to be good people to do patent drawings. For you. you need you need somebody that's trained in that, and we're not. Um, we you pay an artist to do that stuff, yeah. and usually a patent attorney has a network of artists that they pick from. Right. There's probably some other um, steps of the process that you're familiar with. Not. Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk to anybody. Um, I, I can only talk for a certain amount of time, but it's not paid. But I, I'm happy to, to chat with you informally about it. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Um, okay, so is that cool? I'm going to talk about the next thing. I know I don't know how much time we have here. Yeah, keep going. Okay. So um, I guess I'll sort of prelude to this. Uh, this is a frustrating process, this is what I do now, um, mainly because prototyping is uh, dependent on other people, which means if I want to make uh, you know, a sample one of these, I got to go to a machine shop and say, hey, can you make this part? And I got to go to a plastics guy and say, hey, can you make this part? And I got to go to an electronics firm and say, hey, can you make this part? And it's, it's a lot of work uh, for the prototyping side. And it's slow, because I'm waiting for big companies to stop doing what they're doing and make one of my little things, and they don't care about me, uh, you know? And so they charge a lot of money for that and all, all this stuff. So, so this idea fixes that problem. And uh, this, is a, this is a pitch that I give to investors, so this is a little different uh, than sort of informal way I talk to you guys, but uh, should, should suffice. But you can stop me anytime if, if you're interested. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, this, this company uh, that we're calling Maker College, which is not a college, despite the fact that it has that in the name, which we may have to change at some point. Uh, this is still early stage. We're still, I'm still raising capital for this. Um, so it's the combination of a sort of modern incubator, something called an accelerator, which is a term I'll describe in detail, um, and uh, sort of a new way of doing a fabrication shop, which is becoming the sort of two separate business models that work in different places, and I'm putting them together. <coughs> so, um, ideas is what gets me. That's why I'm here. That's why I do what I do is because I really like ideas. And you find that when you look at companies that are staggeringly successful, they don't depend on one idea, which is kind of weird because that's the way most people think about it. Oh, I want to get into the product development process. I have this one thing that I want to make. Um, they actually are constantly coming up with new things. And not just one or two things. They're coming up with a broad array of things. They're coming up with ideas all over the place. 95% of which are crazy, that don't make any sense. Um, but that's part of the process of developing good stuff, is that you have this wide lens that you're looking through. Um, and so you, you look at companies like Apple and Google and all these guys, and even though Apple, for example, has a very narrow product range of what they sell, they're constantly looking at all different ways to do everything. Okay? And most people don't know that, but when they developed the iPod, for example, they had about 50 prototypes that they developed to say, okay, is this the right size? We want it to be longer than shorter. Is this wheel thing going to work? And they have all this different stuff that, that they do. And they actually have the best prototyping facility, they, I mean, they say, in the world. Um, and it is, uh, as a sort of industrial designer and someone that makes stuff, the best job in the world that you can get is working for Apple's prototyping shop um, for a number of reasons. But uh, it's also a very hard job to get for that reason. So, so the question becomes when you want to when you want to start a company is is how do you capture lots of ideas, um, and good ones are really important. I'm not going to say that you just write down ten things and one of those is going to be successful. Uh, you have to come up with good ideas, but lots is a really important factor. You need to be generating lots of different things, and uh, you know this is pretty obvious. But the best ideas don't come from cubicles. Um, 
despite the fact that a lot of companies think that that's the best way to do business. Yeah. And so you have to think, uh, you know, why, why is that so? Why does the sort of cubicle office environment not work for a lot of young companies? And if you look at any of these sort of new startups, especially sort of in the Silicon Valley area, you'll see that they have you know, foosball tables and ping pong and beer and all, they have all this crazy stuff, right? Because you don't generate ideas when you're sitting down in a chair um, as good as you do when you're in the shower or when you're you know, playing a game with your friend and you say, oh, this foosball handle is silly. I need to ch change the way it's done. Um, it comes all, all the time. And so the, the process is uh, sort of trying to get your mind to relax a little bit. And that's when you start generating really interesting things. And uh, so that's sort of where this, this idea eventually goes. So when you want to start a company, um, and I don't know how many of you guys have started companies before. Um, I've done it a couple times. And it's, it's uh, a lot of work. There's a lot of effort that goes into it. A lot of schmoozing. You have to meet with investors if you're trying to raise money. A lot of dinners and a lot of... Uh, you're dealing with lawyers and contracts and term sheets and accountants and all this stuff. And then if you're trying to raise money, which is sort of what this is directed at, you're often giving up a big part of your company for a relatively small amount of money. Um, so just as an example, the first company I started, we took a, a, an angel investor uh, that gave us $150,000, which is a small amount of money for, for, for an investor, and took 37% of the company. Okay. That eventually, about 12 weeks later, sold for $3.9 million. Right? For 150 grand. Talk about a good investment, right? And that's pretty common. That's kind of the way it's done. That's the price you pay. Uh, and it's sad because it's really not fair to the to the inventor. But what's funny is that uh, investors don't like it either. Uh, you always think sort of on oh, this sort of lowly entrepreneur, and, and you know they they uh, have you know fancy dinners and they don't have to worry about anything, and they just get great ideas fed to them, and it's easy. Um, but you talk to any seasoned investor, and they'll tell you that a lot of their work is a pain. You know. Uh, you know, they have to meet all these people selling them ideas. A lot of them are saying, oh, I'll give you 50 bucks, or give me 50 bucks, and then I'll be worth 100 million in a week. And they say, that's not true. Um, or, I have this one student who uh, really knows how to write software, and he's going to ship a product that's going to be having 5 million users, and, you know, which is, you need a lot of people and knowledge and all this stuff that a lot of people don't have sometimes when they're building a company. Um, and so you have to kind of sit through all these business plans and all these sort of ideas and find find their own ones. I think you have people that are, that, that are sort of um, uh, still trying to sort of take money from you uh, whenever you have a lot of money. That's a pretty common problem. Um, and so you have the same thing, accountants and attorneys and, and the, you know, the contracts and all this stuff. There's all this overhead you have to go through and just to invest in one company or two companies a year. So that's sort of the old way it's done. Um, this is a, a really interesting guy named Paul Graham who uh, started a company called ViaWeb. If you, you guys may remember, uh, they were a very big company in sort of the dot-com, sort of peak of the dot-com bubble, I guess, the first dot-com bubble. And he sold this company, ViaWeb, which was an online marketplace, to Yahoo, which became Yahoo Store, which is still kind of alive, but it was the first online store uh, for about 50 million bucks. And so he made some money. And he is, a, is kind of a, a different guy than the standard entrepreneur, and he really likes building companies, and so he invested a lot of that money in other companies. He sort of became a little investor himself, because he really wanted to kind of support this, the, the development of this thing. And he, uh, when he, when he sort of got to the investment side, he realized this is a pain in the ass for investors, too. You know, he, he sort of thought what every other entrepreneur, which is, you know, the, the easy part is the investor. Everything else is, is really hard, but they have it really nice. It's not true. And so he said, in all this technology that we have, all of this amazing stuff that's going on, how is this still the standard? And so he said, I... There's got to be a better way to do this, and I think I know what it is. 
And so he creates this company called Y Combinator, which uh, not a lot of people know outside of sort of the investment community. Um, and their idea is, or sort of his idea is faster, better, cheaper, which usually you only pick two of those. Um, but he picks all three. And it's developing a ton of companies at once, sort of mass-producing startup companies. Uh, and by doing that, you <coughs> cut down dramatically on your overhead per company. And the process is pretty different than the standard, I'm going to write a business plan and submit it to a bunch of people that I've kind of met through my schmoozing. Um, you, there's a, a really simple web application, uh, and it asks questions. Instead of submitting a formal business plan, it, it asks questions like, if you were trying to pick up a girl at a bar, what would you ask her, or what would you tell her to impress her? You know? so, so they're trying to gauge you as a person before really gauging your idea, which is really important when you're developing a company. If you're accepted into this program, uh, you fly out to Y Combinator's sort of headquarters, and they have a, a big building in um, Menlo Park, California, which is near Apple. And um, everybody kind of lives out there for three months, really, really, really quick time. And at the end of those three months, they either you know, sort of decide if you're successful or not uh, through this thing called Demo Day, which is a big auditorium full of about 500 venture capitalists and Google and Microsoft and Apple and all these sort of big players in, in the tech space. And they all pitch. Um, and by a lot, I mean a lot. We're talking about 70 companies. Okay? It's a lot of companies to do uh, in, in one year for any investor. Uh, it's pretty simple. If you are accepted, you get uh, about $20,000 of capital, which is very small, and they take about 6% equity, so a very tiny amount of uh, equity from the company. And while all that is fine and dandy, what's really amazing is this, which is two-thirds of the companies that leave this program have raised $600,000 in what we call a Series A round, which is the first big investment round, before they've, before they've been done. You know? So in three months, they've gone from $0 in the bank, or $20,000 in the bank, to be fair, to $600,000 in the bank on average. Some, some of these companies are $10 million in the bank, right? Um, because this process is so innovative, it's so helpful. You're getting all these different people coming in and saying, oh, you need to change this logo on your website because it's too ugly, and you need to uh, you know, talk to this guy because he knows how to develop you know, databases really well, and you should talk to this guy because he'll tell you how to pitch better and all this stuff. I'm really helping you. But it's very different from an incubator, which a lot of people think this is. An incubator is designed to see if you're, or, or to, to help you sort of do business, become a company. So if it takes a year, fine. If it takes five years, fine. If it takes 10 years, eh, it took 10 years. So long as there's potential there, they're going to keep sort of paying attention to you. This company says, you've got three months. If at the end of three months you fail, you're done. See you later at the door. No, no harm done. We invested in you with that sort of fear, be, being aware. But we don't care to do business with, any, with, with, with you anymore. Good luck. Um, which is very different than, than an incubator, which is kind of prop you up. So this, uh, this company was, in fact, so successful that there are many copycats. There's about 30 of these companies all over the world now. Uh, this is five years ago, so pretty fast. Um, Techstars is sort of the big number two there in Boston, um, which you guys may have heard of Techstars, but maybe not. But there's one problem with this company, one problem that I think is huge, which is you have to be starting a web 2.0 or a software company. Okay? So this is not for physical products. This is not for you know, new business models. This is for web companies, which is where a lot of the money is right now in sort of the, the investment community. And even though I'm a fairly young person and I'm fairly technologically aware, I'm not a big fan of the internet um, in, for certain things. This is a, a video of a cat playing the piano that had garnered 10, 11 million YouTube hits, um, which I think is a little silly. 
uh, maybe I'm alone here, but I don't really understand like Twitter and even Facebook. I think it's kind of weird. Uh, yeah. yeah. Good yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you. Cool. I, I heard you that. I just don't, I want to talk to people in real life. Maybe that's weird. Um, but I, I don't fully get some of this stuff. I think some of it's great. I think email's great. I think uh, you know so, some of the new stuff Skype. is great. Yeah, I think Skype is great. Exactly right. Video Skype. Yeah. But Fantastic. I use Skype every single day for business, and it's life saving. But I don't understand keyboard cat, um, and I don't understand you need to tell the world that I just had a great sandwich, uh, or I just <laughs> but I, I just don't, I just don't get it. Um, so the question is, why, why do these accelerators? Why do all these companies that are starting? There's you know thirty of them. Why do they all? require you to be a software company. Why? Why, 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 why? It's a really weird question. And the answer is in this chart I showed you before, um, which is the product development process. This is for anything. This is for software, hardware, new business, whatever. This is the exact same process you're going through when you're doing anything. Um, and there's one massive difference between software development and hardware development, which is uh, prototyping. Prototyping when you're developing software is really easy. You get a, a, a book and you sit at a computer for a couple hours and you have something that you can show to people. And, and they say, oh, you gotta change this. And it takes three seconds, it's changed, and now everybody in the world can see it. So you have this really rapid iteration that you don't get with hardware where you're making individual parts and there's six weeks between each time you get a new product or whatever. Uh, it's also uh, thought of as being very expensive. Um, and and it, it is, sort of objectively. It's a lot of money that, that it takes to develop something. Um, but it's a lot cheaper than it used to be. Uh, and, and like this product, which cost us uh, maybe 200 grand to develop, um, which we made back in the first week of the product being sold. Um, this product uh, would have cost, I can't even, I don't know, a million and a half dollars to develop? Five million dollars? I don't know, I have no idea. Um, and it took us, again, I spent three hours developing the plastic. You know? So it's, it's surprising how, how cheap some of this stuff can get. Um, and again, this is sort of the sort of the web. The web model is really all you need is a computer. Uh, there's really not other other uh, equipment required. You need some knowledge, which you can get on the internet for free these days. And because of this, uh, a lot of these web companies are really what we call capital efficient. They take a little bit of money and they can make a lot, uh, which is usually you need a lot of money to make a lot. Uh, that's sort of the standard business model. Uh, and this is why Y Combinator does this, because they can invest a tiny bit of money in a company and it can turn into 10, 50, 100 million dollars without doing too much extra cash. When you're making physical products, you got all the stuff you need, right? You need computers still, but it's usually you need expensive software and you need some training, which is a little more complicated than trying to learn how to use other stuff. You need expensive machines to make stuff, or at least you gotta pay people to use expensive machines. Um, you need a 3D printer, which is pretty expensive. It's a pretty common tool. It's, 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 this used to cost, uh, I don't know, a quarter million dollars and 10 years ago, now they're 30 grand. Uh, this is a, I don't know if you guys are familiar with 3D printers, you want me to talk about that for a second? So, John knows about this well, but <laughs> uh, a 3D printer is this amazing piece of technology that allows you to take a drawing in a, on a computer and literally say file and print, and you get a physical version of that out in the real world. It sounds like sci fi, but it's a real thing. Uh, and in fact, a lot of companies now that are developing certain kinds of products sell for the first couple of months or even a year, just sell printed versions of their stuff because they don't have to, they have no overhead. All they have to do is pay for plastic. And it's expensive. It's about $5 a cubic centimeter, um, which is, you know, it's pennies to do an injection mold with that kind of volume. But it's amazing. You can sit this thing on your desk in your office and draw stuff and it comes out in real life. And it's a really valuable tool. It still costs 30 grand though. 
Um, it's being used a lot in medical research now, I believe. A, a lot of what's being used in medical research. It's used all the time, all over the place. Yeah. Uh, medical research is a big place, but anywhere that requires complex geometry, um, that's it's way more cost effective than having any kind of mold made or anything. Uh, and then space and all that stuff. So, luckily, this problem, which I've proposed as being impossible to solve, has already been solved. And it's solved by a company called Tech Shop. You guys ever heard of Tech Shop? Okay. There's a company in, in uh, uh, I guess I'll get there. Um, it works just like a gym. So they have, instead of uh, sort of treadmills and weight machines and uh, all this sort of fancy gym equipment that you pay a monthly fee for, it's full of this stuff. It's full of CNC machines and welding equipment and uh, glass blowing furnace and table saws and anything you'd need to make stuff. And you pay a monthly fee and you can do all this cool stuff. Uh, this is some of the what stuff. They you have no idea how to learn all that stuff. Classes and network to, to learn to learn how to do everything. Um, so they have literally a class every single day how to run a CNC machine. They have a class every single day how to learn how to blacksmith. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of really really interesting stuff, and it's becoming wildly successful. They started in 2006, which was five years ago. Um, they've opened four facilities. They're planning on opening 20 more in the next five years. Right? So it's pretty pretty cool. So there's a lot of sort of precursory information that I haven't gotten to what I'm doing yet. This is like, what the heck? Why is this guy still blabbering on? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what we're doing is taking these two business models that work really well independently. Uh, you have this the shop that is now, uh, it's not making a ton of money. It makes, I think they make about 200 grand a year in their profit, which is, you know, it's a nice type of change, but it's not anything anybody's going to invest in. Um, and this Y Combinator company, which makes tens of millions of dollars a year. And we're preparing them to create what we're calling the Major College. Um, and so the, the pitch is we're going to fund and train 10 new product startups every semester. Um, and it's going to cost what it costs to invest in one or two of them because we're doing a lot of sort of overhead efficiencies. Uh, the typical sort of Y Combinator company just focuses on this one side, this capital for startup businesses, which means you're going to start a company and I'm going to uh, exit out of this Y Combinator program, and I'm going to try to raise my $600,000 that I talked about. Uh, you want to raise more money. And that, that means that's what qualifies you as being successful. You've raised the additional capital. But with the product space, that doesn't work as well. Um, a lot, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of companies that come out with a single product fail. It just doesn't work. Uh, you need to have multiple products in order to really sustain business. And so the key is when in the product space is to license your product. So you say, hey, you know, big snowshoe company, you want to make this little idea ahead. And there are a lot of problems with going through the licensing process, but um, it's it's very helpful for certain kinds of companies when they're trying to start a new, a new product. So the, the 90s uh, were home to this sort of computer revolution uh, that sort of changed the world as we know it. Um, and it started with the sort of do-it-yourself thing. I don't know if you guys are familiar with sort of the home hobby PC sort of movement in the sort of... 70s and 80s, um, it's how Apple got started, it's how Gateway got started, it's how a lot of these companies sort of were formed. And the same thing is happening right now in what we call the maker movement, which are people making stuff themselves. So these are guys that are, you know, programming circuit boards themselves, they're, you know, even you know, ordering little circuits made from a company that sells them for, you know, pennies on the dollar, what it costs to do a big production run, um, and using 3D printers and machining stuff and all this kind of kind of amazing stuff that's happening in the home, in the home space, in sort of this do-it-yourself kind of way. And, and we think that that's going to become much bigger. It's going to become like the computer revolution did today. So California was really home to this sort of computer thing, and, and for a bunch of reasons, I actually think Massachusetts has some 
pretty unique assets that make it uh, appropriate for at least part of the maker revolution that's that's happening. Um, and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more. But it, it, there's a lot of history sort of involved in this area of the world uh, having to do with making stuff. That's probably a lot of the reason you guys are here. Um, and we think that some of those assets are pretty useful for a company like this. So we're, we're putting this place in Holyoke and, and uh, with the idea of using this old mill building to make new companies making stuff. And I can talk more in more detail if you guys have specific questions. But So the, the final pitch is, is this, which are these six guys, which I'm hoping you know most of those faces. Uh, anybody know what these guys have in common besides being really rich and owning companies? They started small. Yeah, they started small. Anything else? No? Not a single one of these guys holds a college degree. That's right. It's just no, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is staggering. These, these are some of the six most profitable people, most innovative people in the world of all time. Right? They never went to college. Why? Why did they never go to college? It's a really good question. Why, why do you think going to college is the standard way to sort of make make the living. That's true. Yeah. No, but, but that, that's actually a huge point. They had, they had a garage, right? And so they they didn't really have. They knew what they wanted to do, but college didn't offer that. College didn't fit with what they wanted to do. So they said, you know, I don't need to do this. A lot of these guys actually went to college and dropped out. A real statistic is eighty-five percent of people uh, with college degrees do not work in the field in which they are yeah, school. Absolutely. Eighty-five yeah. percent. Yeah, and so. This, this idea actually originally came from my sort of rejection of the standard college process, why it's called Maker College, is I believe that people should be doing stuff instead of learning stuff. Uh, I've learned everything I know from actually making stuff and doing things instead of sitting in a classroom being lectured to. Um, but we want to create a place that, you know, that, that fosters this kind of stuff, that, that people don't need to stay in the garage to make stuff. They come to us and we'll show them how to, how to do some of this stuff. But they'll still be doing a lot of the things themselves. Um, and that's sort of the the pitch to make your college. So, so many people, oh, I'm sorry. Go for it. So, um, let's say I have an idea and I can come to Make college. So, so yeah, so you would apply online just like Y Combinator. So there would be, uh, you know, twice a year we're going to offer an application process that's open to the world. People apply and say, I got this great idea for this. No, 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 it's all confidential. Um, we won't really get any of that stuff. And um, if we like your idea, you get sort of accepted into the program. We give you 20 grand. And we take a small amount of whatever you wind up making from that product. Um, it's, it'll probably be more than Y Combinator, probably around 10%, maybe 12%. Um, and then you will work, or if, or whatever makes sense for you, uh, in our space, which will be a 20,000 square foot shop facility with a large network of classes and all kinds of help from, from business perspective to patent attorneys to SolidWorks, learning how to draw stuff in CAD, to learning how to use a machine to make prototypes, to you need to make this pink instead of green because your target market doesn't like that color, to all, all kinds of stuff. We have a pretty good network of people that are helping us out here. Um, and then by the end of it, uh, it's going to be hopefully five months. By the end of that five months, you'll have a product that you can go to people and say, look, look this is a professional thing that is awesome, that sort of shows my idea off. It may not be manufacturable, but it'll be designed by people that know sort of towards the vector of manufacturing. Um, you know, so it's not going to be impossible to make. But it'll, it may not be optimized for, for manufacturing. That you can show to licensees or investors or whatever. So our, our goal isn't necessarily to get you out to sell that product, because that's usually a more expensive process. Um, but it will be depending on what it is. So a lot of things now you can actually just sell online. 
And if you're not going to make 100 million of them, selling them online is actually pretty easy. Uh, I don't know if you guys know Etsy, which is a really cool sort of online uh, home kind of crafty kind of thing where you get a lot of people that kind of blow glass and uh, blacksmith or uh, What's it called? Etsy, E-T-S-Y. Um, and it's the number one place in the world to get awesome Christmas presents. I buy all my Christmas presents from this place. Because they're all local folks all over the world that make really cool stuff. Awesome lamps and just little like trinkets and that kind of stuff. And they all make them by hand and they sell them online for I think really reasonable price. How close are you with this college? <laughs> Not as close as I'd like. Um, so we're, we're trying to raise a reasonable amount of money, a lot of money for this area, and we're about a quarter of the way there. So I'm still raising capital, um, which is hard because I'm running a company 80 hours a week. So I don't have a lot of time for raising money. Is the city of Foyoke, um, are any state participation? Very much so. Very um, much so. The governor? I shouldn't say particip financial participation, but they're very engaged in the development process. Are you on the first level? Now, somewhere around Brown and Crocker The the building that we're purchasing, actually, which is separate, I'm actually buying the building myself as a personal investment. Is um, it's on Ray Street? Oh, I know where it is. Um, on the right on the number two canal across oh, from yeah. <laughs> uh, right across the street from the new computing center, which is coming. Yeah. Um, the old the old yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. right across the street from what? The computing center. This oh, the new computing center. Computing center. Yeah, you guys know about the new computing center? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because I'm somewhat active in the sort of process of that, and it's. Right, so why did you choose that location? Because the hydro power. No, uh, well, Holyoke in general, or that that part of the. Are you talking about Holyoke in general, or are you yeah, talking about that specific the, the street? Specific area you chose. So I went on a, a. I actually didn't plan on buying a building. I'll say that uh, quite honestly. I have never purchased something that large, and I never really thought I was going to. Um, but a funny thing happened. I was looking at space to get an idea of cost, trying to understand you know, what are the costs about this town, this town, this town. I love mill buildings. They're amazingly built, really cool architecture. Um, they're often not maintained very well, which is a problem. Um, so I looked at about six spaces. And on the last day, I went, actually went to go see uh, this building. And all, all the spaces, you know, they, they've been there for 150 years. and. and 50 different companies have been there, and they build, you know, one company moves in, they build a wall, a new company comes in, they knock half of it down and build this other thing. It's a very kind of like piecemeal-y thing, you know? Um, and then they just sort of fall into general disrepair, Bruce Lee, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I looked uh, at this building, and actually there's already, already an offer placed on this building. And I, I walked walk through with a good friend of mine who was a, owns a lot of buildings in Holyoke, uh, yeah, in, in, in Holyoke, and actually younger than me. And... Um, he uh, and I both agreed after we walked out of the tour that this building was very different from the other buildings. That this building was actually being sold by the guy, by the son of the guy that built it, which is you don't have that happen anymore. Um, which means it was maintained. There was one company in the ground two floors for uh, built in 1907, so 104 years. Um, it's been in active use ever since, which is very rare, believe it or not, for Holyoke, uh, which means the roof is in good shape, the heating system works well, the plumbing is in good shape, the electrical systems are in good place. It wasn't good burnt shape. down. What? It wasn't burnt down. Yeah, it definitely wasn't burnt down. Although, building next to it, that sort of abutted it. What did burn down? Um, and it just, it's super well made. You can just tell. Um, you know, it definitely was a more expensive building when they built it. Uh, it had, you know, bigger frame, be bigger beam frames than the standard building, and thicker walls, and bigger windows, and all this kind of stuff. So, uh, I kind of just got that feeling that you get when something's good, a good deal, and kind of kept going on that. 
We actually haven't officially purchased it yet, but it's getting close. Is that in one of the enterprise zones? It's in, uh, yes, it's in, it's in a couple zones. It's in, so it's zoned arts and industry. Arts Industrial, I think it's called, which is sort of the general zoning of Holyoke, which is this kind of new thing. You can basically do anything you want. Um, fire code. But, but there are enterprise zones where the state will kick in money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the state is a little funny. And I'm learning about all this stuff as I go. Um, the state, they have very specific rules about when the enterprise zone stuff kicks in. Uh, actually, the biggest, I think, sort of benefit is this foreign free trade, I think they call it, foreign free trade zone. Yeah. Where if you, if you take any material from overseas or something, there's you don't have to pay tax on it for some amount of years. There's all these kinds of weird restrictions, um, which I'm still learning about. But uh, it's in it's in that. It's also in what's called the Innovation District, which is uh, more of a PR thing than anything else. But it's uh, around the Computing Center. They're trying to sort of build this hub of new young companies, and so it just happens to fit in that envelope, which is really nice. Um, yeah. Sure. So we only have floors rated for. Like it's amazing how I mean any any building built around that was sort of expected to take those kinds of loads. Um, the loading I don't remember what it is, but it was like 250 pounds a square inch or something like that. It was way higher than you'd expect. Um, you know, it's ten textile mills or yeah, yeah. I mean, this actually wasn't a mill building. It was just, it was built for uh, it's a plumbing supply building, so it was built for like kind of storage um, and general for sale stuff. But it didn't matter. They built all the buildings the same way. Um, and so there's 12 by 12 beams or the joists, you know, you don't find that anywhere. You know, so, yeah. You mentioned um, working and living. Are you going to do a Yeah, so we, we've talked about that. We're still, again, this is pretty early, and until the funding is closed, you really don't know all the final details. But our plan right now is to do the top floor as apartments. Um, so the building has five floors, and we only need one of them for the shop. It's a big building, 85,000 square feet. Um, and so the top floor will be sort of nice studio-ish apartments uh, that people can come in and live in. And that way, if everything goes to hell, we can sell them and not be too, too broke. <laughs> yeah, That's in South Wales. Yeah. Really cheap, uh, low overhead office space that includes everything. So it's got Wi Fi, it's got fax machines, it's got phone lines. So if you wanted to do things on your, uh, our company wanted to do work on, say, whatever devices, uh, yep. mechanical, medical, whatever, and they just wanted to use your expertise on a contract basis, but yet wanted to keep things private, they could still do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so part of the, I didn't really get into this too much, but the, um, or I didn't really focus on it. The, the way the shop makes money, the, the way the shop makes sense, I shouldn't say makes money, makes sense, is that it has this membership program, kind of like this gym. So you pay a monthly, actually we have also a daily and annual rate that you pay to access all these machines. For You don't have to have any kind of idea, ownership, and there's nothing. So any, you know, Joe Schmo off the street can come on and use a CNC machine for 100 bucks a month um, or whatever that he would like to use. And we think that even though that part of the business doesn't make a lot of money, it's interesting enough that it'll attract a lot of attention. Uh, it's a pretty different kind of business model. Won't that take away from brainstorm? Won't that take business away from you? I mean, it's 
I, I'm, you you gonna go there? I'm, I'm planning. I, this is much more exciting to me than what I do now. Uh, I mean, okay. I'm I'm very happy with what I do now, but I, oh, this is. But you've done it. And yeah. Done that, I, I get impatient okay. real fast. Uh, I need to move on to the next thing. Yeah, but I, I'm hoping to keep to keep that up. Yeah. But I could I could see myself doing this for ten years, which is that doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a lot for me. You, know, you could say I've had like three careers already, and then 25. Um, so, uh, yeah, does that kind of answer your question? Okay. John, you still you got your hand? Well, yeah, I was wondering, I was going to say, because you did mention the, the yeah. rental virus, yeah. and so that's that's part of the plan here, too. Okay? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big part of the plan. Um, but again, it's not it's not designed to make to make money. It's designed to break even so that the, the business incubator can use it for free. Uh, that's sort of the goal, uh, which is strange. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really complicated business in terms of the way different things fit together, and especially because we were originally going to do it as a nonprofit. We're um, uh, half nonprofit, which is impossible. But I don't know anything about that because I've never started a nonprofit before. <laughs> so I'm in a little bit of new territory. Uh, all the money I've had to raise before has always been for one specific thing and one idea that I can say, okay, it's going to cost this much to make, and by the time uh, you're done, it's going to be worth this much, or so I think. And this is, you know, very idea based. It's very high, sort of high concept, as we call it. What's the time frame for opening the doors? Oh, at some point, when we when we got the first investor on board, it was supposed to be October this year. It's not going to happen. Um, so you're at least a year away. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's just because the the money is hard to raise when it's this high thing, this high concept thing. And investors don't like that. Um, they want to say they want to bite off something they can chew. They want to know if I'm going to make this much money at this date. And yeah, that's a huge project. Huge project. Yep. So many different directions. Yes. Is it just you working on? No, I have a pretty awesome group of group of folks. Um, that it's kind of this perfect storm of people that I've actually learned a lot of the stuff I know from that happen to be unhappy with their current jobs. Are all going to be involved in the yeah. project? We hope. Um, I'm, I'm doing most of the groundwork now. I'm doing most of the meetings and most of that stuff. But um, right, but you, you've got a financial stake by buying a building, and they're going to have some sort of stake in it as well. The building is totally separate. The, the building is just me. Um, so I'm going to be. Oh, okay. so big. I'm going to be renting for myself. Yeah, so, so the company that essentially leases space from my, the, the building. You shouldn't even think about the building. The building is not really part of it at all. Right. Um, we're just going to be renting space. I'm going to give a little bit of a deal deal to myself. Um, although I'm not going to be part of it because there's a conflict of interest there. So I got to be I got to abstain myself from rent negotiations. Um, but it'll be using that space, and then uh, you know I'll be benefiting from that because I'll have a tenant that happens to be a company that I'm willing, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is a really nice deal to be having with yourself. <laughs> is your primary source of funding is it going to be banks or? Strictly angel or VC? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so originally it was going to be strictly angel. It's a it's not a VC kind of raise. It's a very um, early project. So VCs want to usually know again. They want to know all the parameters. Angels are usually a little bit more risky because they're willing to take that bet. Um, but it's a little bit bigger than a standard standard angel raise, and so it's that's a little bit complicated. Uh, the first investor is an angel investor. Um, we've also been turning to the state now, and so. Again, I know nothing about. I'm learning all this new stuff about how state funding works. Um, but we've been. Yeah, an SBA or anything with anything that's. Uh, we've been working with MTC, um, and uh, the city of Holyoke has actually been really helpful. Surprisingly, actually, um, they are super pumped about new companies. Really, really pumped, and um, I think they're trying. Excuse me. The 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 computing center thing is 
oversold is maybe the word that I want to use. It's it's great. It's a really good thing to be there. It's like 20 jobs, you know, and it's not a huge thing in terms of economic development. Well, will you accept the GI Bill for tuition? Is that I'm just that's a question. You yeah, the, I mean, this is a common question: is that how does the tuition work? It's not really a standard college, which is why the name may need to be changed. Um, when this was originally done, when I originally thought of this idea, it was going to be actually a school that would be accredited. You would go there, and instead of taking classes on you know, physics and calculus and material science, you would take classes on how to make stuff. So it would be much more like hands-on kind of thing. Um, and this comes from my background, which was going to Hampshire College and their shop facility, which is uh, the opposite of the way you learn how to become an engineer. So the standard, I don't know how many engineers, there are a lot of engineers in this room. I'll be careful, but uh, I'm, I'm not a, even though I do a lot of engineering-like things, I'm not a traditional engineer. I didn't get a you know, standard engineering degree. Um, the way typical engineering program works is, you know, first year you learn material science, you take some calculus, and you learn statics, and the second year you sort of take some more advanced classes, and same kind of thing. Maybe a third year you're getting into a lab to sort of test some stuff or you know, little, little sort of things here and there. Maybe the fourth year you're, you're designing something from scratch, maybe. So, sometimes, sometimes not. Very rarely throughout that entire process you're actually making things yourself. With a lot of big schools you're actually designing something and then having a machine shop that the school owns in the building will get UMass make that thing for you. And uh, Hampshire works the exact opposite. They believe that you learn better by applying your knowledge as fast as you can learn it. Um, and I believe that's true. That's true as well. And so they have a, a shop facility that, called the Lemelson Center, which is this really amazing place where people come in there with absolutely zero experience and say, I want to make this you know, bike, or I want to make this whatever. And they make the first one, and it doesn't work. And it doesn't ride, and its wheels are square, and you know, all these problems that people have when they build something new for the first time. But they're so interested in the process, because they actually made something themselves. They actually built this thing. They have to say, OK, how do I design you know, camber into a wheel? How do I? you know?" form aluminum to make it you know, strong. How do I temper stuff? You know, they, they want to learn all this stuff. So they go and they take their material science class, and they take their statics class, and they take their CAD class, mm. all with the intention of being able to use it to make the next iteration of their idea. Um, and so people learn incredibly well. They, they just retain everything because they're using it as they go along. But they also do something, which is really cool. So they, they, you graduate, and you have this, th this thing or these things that you've made that are real things that you can do stuff with. And not, I mean, a, a lot of people do, but it feels really good to graduate school after having spent $250,000 and have, a, have something to show for it besides a piece of paper, you know? Um, and so I totally fell in love with that, with that process and that way of learning, and I want to take it to the next level. Uh, and that, that was sort of where the concept came from. This would be literally a college you would apply for, you would pay tuition, and you would get a degree in the making of things, um, sort of tailored towards making a business, starting a business. Um, and it turns out that my network and my ability and my background don't lend themselves well to education. I just don't know enough about that world. I couldn't raise money for it. I tried for about six weeks and it failed miserably. Um, and that's also being partnered with the guy who started Lemelson um, and who is you know, an employee at Hampshire College and knows that world very well. Uh, it's, it's a very hard thing to do. Starting a school is very difficult. And a lot of regulation, a lot more money than you expect. So it's not what I want to deal with. So that's where we're kind of sort of pivoted to this new way of doing things where you kind of create businesses and that's how you learn, um, which is sort of the same thing, but uh, maybe, maybe not call it college anymore. Yeah, there, there, there's no degree at the end of this. It's just money in the bank, hopefully. Um, yeah, sorry. Is Jake going to help you out? Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, Jake, Jake's a student of mine that 
went to Hampshire and super talented. I don't know if what your experience with him was, but super, super motivated guy. Um, and you just see uh, a lot of amazing stuff happen in Hampshire, just people doing wild things. Uh, the first biodiesel motorcycle was built at Hampshire College. Um, <laughs> right now they're built, Jake is actually working on, I don't know if he, has he talked to you since starting his Diff 3? Um, I so, so uh, are you guys familiar with the way Hampshire works? They have this sort of division process. Um, and you, you get to the end of the process, and basically have this full year where you're taking no classes and just doing something. And um, it's kind of like a master's thesis. It's very sort of driven to, to make things instead of to learn things. And so, the, uh, this guy Jake, who, who worked with John, and he was a student of mine, um, is building uh, an electric car. Uh, and yeah, uh, and it's you know, yeah, there's a lot of electric cars being made now, but these guys are doing a awesome job for you know three students that don't have a formal degree of any kind and they're just machining every part by hand they're designing they're doing all the CAD design doing all the statics analysis doing all the electrical design for the whole system designing all the batteries they raised all the money to, to build it um, you know they've done everything and it's you know it's not phenomenal but it's pretty amazing for three guys in a year um, you know so it's, it's just really impressive to me when that kind of stuff happens and it makes me really happy to have an when I was at UConn studying mechanical engineering, the old-fashioned way, starting with theory, and we had six guys that made a four-wheel vehicle, so that's kind of equivalent to what you did at Hampshire College. Yeah, sure. But they did it with you know ninety credits of physics, sure. and yeah. dynamics, and statics, yeah, sure. yeah. and it was done with blueprints and drawings. So I would knock the engineering profession too hard. I'm not, I'm not knocking it at all. I'm just saying I think yeah. there's, there's a different way to learn it. Mm -hmm. um, and. These guys, none of them have an engineering degree. All of them have taken statics. All of them have taken material science. All of them know physics. All of them know calculus. Yeah. So but they I mean, learned it in a different way. They, they learned it from the, what I call the bottom up instead of yeah, the top yeah. down. Yeah, we had, we, had, we had teachers that used to want to teach the backwards way, like the theories of mass and momentum and energy, the equations of mass, momentum, and energy, and conservation of things like static electricity mm -hmm. uh, and the first year. And uh, you know they were generally idealistic. PhD students that were only there for their PhD, but the curriculum generally lends itself towards building itself brick by brick from the bottom. Sure. Uh, it's it's not um, it's you know it's just the way that we do things in America. But if if um, you know if you want to make engineering and technology curriculum available and and the experience of building things with one hand, I think. Uh, I was kind of wondering what the cost would be. Like, what, what would the uh, program cost for about nine months? And would, would it uh, would it be very expensive, like Hampshire College, or would it be very inexpensive, like uh, community college? I mean, we, we didn't, again, we didn't actually go through with this, so I don't really know what all the details were. But we, we were talking about um, tuition being about $20,000 a year. Um, and as part of that, you would, uh, the first thing that you would get would be a ton of tools. Uh, it would be sort of like your. Congratulations on getting in. Here's you know five thousand dollars in tools. Uh, I agree with everything you're trying to do. And in fact, I want to. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just. Gonna, I want to help you, and I want to do things. Cool. Awesome. But, but I. But I, I. I think. I think that. Uh, you know, you have to be ready to accept the public because the public is who's going to be in your classroom. And uh, you know, it's not going to be your Hampshire College schoolmates because they are. You know, they're getting picked. But I mean, we're just we're just changing the model from sort of student public to sort of I guess I would call idea public. So people that say I got this great idea for this gizmo, and I really want to make it, but I don't know how to you know machine something. So teach me. And oh, I need some money. So so give me some money too. Um, 
And it's funny how easy it, it, it's. It's really strange because you think about going to college and you're paying all this money for to just to learn stuff. Um, and with this model, which is totally you know the, the funding side is totally standard, is oh I'm gonna I'm gonna get money and I'm gonna do something, which is this really like doesn't make any sense when you really think about it on a high level. You're paying all this money to learn something and you don't do anything, and then this way you're getting paid and you're doing something and you're still learning a bunch the whole process. You know so. It's just a little bit of an idealistic thing that I have that I don't fully understand. Uh, <laughs> but I went to Hampshire, so you know I'm super biased uh, in every possible way there is. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I have a stack of little business cards here if you guys want to grab some. Um, this is just from my current company now, uh, and uh, the Maker College stuff is not formally public yet. I'm still trying to raise money. But some of you guys may have seen the survey that went around a while. Is ago. there any kind of pattern that you're following, or is this something that you're just creating all in your own? Yeah, that's that's one of the things is that um, this is never done before. Um, so great. it's more power. I mean, it's great, but it's also really hard. Yeah, it, uh, it, there's no rule. Yeah. <laughs> so if I would, you know, the reason it's so easy to start a company like Y Combinator is because I can go in and say, listen, you give me five million bucks, and I'll show you how much money you're going to make, because all these other companies did the same thing. Um, but I'm going in, even though the model's the same, I'm going in and saying I'm doing a different space. And they say, hey, oh, physical stuff. Yeah, yeah. But actually, the costs aren't that bad. Um, they're, they're pretty cheap when you compare it to how much money is going into the business side. A lot of really specific things. Yeah, yeah. Sheer number of massive stuff. You can get a lot of stuff for not a lot of money. It's amazing, yeah. especially in this area, how much used equipment you can find. Um, so... If you know what to look for, it's really easy. And uh, I think that the money actually makes a lot of sense. It's really cheap. In fact, I get a, 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 a sort of eyebrow raise when I say how much money I need. And you're like, really? You can do that with that? Uh, and yeah. It also helps up working for you. Is, uh, you said you, you put this together, designed this in about uh, as much time as it took you to drink a beer. Yeah. And you said it took you three hours. I'm going, well, it takes it like three hours to drink a beer. <laughs> That's why he's up there and I'm sitting here. When I was 25, I was 12 pounds. It was a period. Yeah. Really big beer. That's a keg. That's why he's a wicked smack. <laughs> no, I, it, was, it was maybe a couple beers. But it, it definitely, it was one seat. We'll give you this. Okay. <laughs> I, I apologize, apologize for overestimating the amount of time. <laughs> Just thinking about my own life here. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> Some wasted time. No, I'll get out of here. I got stories to tell. The stories are good. <laughs> stories are good. Uh, what you have on your foot? Is that one of your marketing projects? Or? <laughs> Those are cool. <laughs> these are my shoes. Um, these are actual shoes? These are actual shoes. No, these are, these are real things that you can buy in stores. Uh, they're called Five Fingers, and they are shoes without soles. Um, I actually, I heard a talk that uh, this guy, I know, you guys are familiar with Ted? TED Talks. You need to. All of you need to write this down because this is the most amazing resource in the world. Um, sorry, I don't, I don't give orders very often, but this is a good one. Uh, it's called TED. TED.com stands for Technology, Entertainment, and Design, um, and it is a very uh, uh, ooh, how do I say this? Uh, innovative conference that's put on every year in, in California. Um, and it, they invite the most innovative people, the most creative people, the most famous people uh, in any space, but focusing usually on technology, entertainment, and design. And they just talk. They have 20 minutes to, to give a talk, and at the end, 20 minutes are done. And people talk about the most amazing things you will ever hear. And it's all free to the public. They stream all the, all, all the talks. There's about 5,000 of them. 
Um, and so I actually heard heard a, a TED talk on this guy who was a, a runner, and he is talking about uh, running as the only thing that humans do, long distance running as the only thing that humans do better than, than any other animal. There's no other animal that runs the way humans run. And how the way we evolved to be so smart is by chasing stuff down until it died. Because they, they over, we, we sweat really well. No other animal sweats as good as we do. Uh, which sounds, you, know, you don't want to tell your wife that, but. But so we, you know, we were this kind of like, this is, again, this is a theory, but we were this kind of running pack, and we would, oh, there's a lion over there we want to go catch. We would just run it down until it couldn't, couldn't sweat anymore, and it would just pass out from exhaustion. And uh, that's sort of the way he starts. It's a little silly, but he gets into how runners have all these problems with knees and backs and necks and all this stuff. And uh, he, he was a running all problem. He started running barefoot. Every single problem went away in about two months. <laughs> Every single problem. And this company came out with these shoes called Five Fingers, and they have no soles. And uh, I've heard maybe six or so stories from professional runners I know that said um, they all had, you know, couldn't, couldn't, they could only run two days a week because their knees were hurt so much, and they had all these swelling problems. They had to get the, I had a, uh, an aunt who had to get her hip replaced because she was a runner. Um, and every single person I know that has bought these has had every single running problem they've ever had has gone away. And they look really silly. Uh, so you have to get over that. I feel it's the logic. They certainly do. Yeah. <laughs> they, no, they're super weird. I um, can take two looks. But you're, you know, the, the, the typical shoe, sorry, I know this is going on a I'll get off my soapbox soon. Uh, a typical shoe forces you to step on your heel first. That's just sort of the way the geometry of the shoe works. Because your heels, I'm sure you know this, but it's raised higher than the rest of your foot. And um, your joints are not designed for that. Your, your joints have no ability to resist shock. Very, very bad at that. But your toes are great at that. The ball of your foot is really good for, for running. And, and when you walk barefoot, you don't realize it, but you actually walk differently. You walk with your ball of your foot hitting the ground before your heel. And that absorbs all the shock. And that's the whole problem, is that you're, you're, the, the ball hits first. So, so th this guy gives this awesome 15-minute talk. You guys should all watch if you're curious about feet. Um, and uh, so I, I went out the day I saw that I went out and bought these shoes and you know, paid 65 bucks and happiest purchase and of my life tedtalks.com it's just ted.com T-E-D ted.com yep so do they, uh, they have some padding on there yeah so there's a 6 millimeter uh, sort of rubber sole um, I actually don't know what it is um, can't fly around here somewhere. I doubt it. Um, I, I think. I mean, you, you definitely feel the ground more than you do with a normal shoe. But I have. Uh, you know, you were just asking me about you know walking over like curbs and stuff. You feel it's totally fine. Pebbles and all that kind of stuff is no problem. I wouldn't you know walk on nails. Yeah. But I wouldn't do that on shoes anyway. So I feel like I'm okay. Um, and th and they're also cool because you don't need to wear socks. So my laundry bill goes down a tiny bit. And, uh, and they're good. You know, you can run through streams and all that. No worries whatsoever. So I, I don't know. I highly recommend them if you are looking for they, to they, be weird. They, they appear to have influenced your business card. Absolutely. Well, other way around. <laughs> my, my business card influenced my, my shoe decision. Well, thank you very much, Ben. Please help yourself to drink and dessert before you leave. And don't forget to talk to Ben if you have any more questions.